Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the opportunity to catch up with the wonderful Joe Stewart Ratray. She's an absolute powerhouse. I love her frank approach towards her thoughts on the industry and where there needs to be improvement. We discuss her own experiences as being a woman and some of the challenges she's been through. She chats through her opinion towards women taking up more leadership roles within the space. We also touch on her amazing career and what she's doing in developing countries. If you're keen to learn more about Joe and her story, then please keep on listening. Joe, how are you? How's 2021 going for you? I'm guessing it's a little bit better than last year. Uh, Yes, it is. Well, mind you, this time last year, I was preparing to go to Vancouver, Canada to speak. Uh, And so, of course, none of that is in the offering this year. I have previously done, you know, up to 11 international journeys a year. Last year, I got one. This year, I'm not even expecting any. So, you know, life has changed dramatically, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it is off to a... um, I must say it's off to a racing start. Everything right. is really busy and we're already mm. beginning to see the first of the security breaches coming through as well. Also true. So when you say, um, you know, off to a racing start, do you think that's because we've had this period of time where people, I don't like to use the word paused, but perhaps we're sort of in this holding pattern of we weren't really sure where to move. And now that things have somewhat settled down, people are sort of like navigating through well, where to go next. And because there's been some sort of a, uh, a lag or a, a bit of a, um, a change in direction now that people are like, okay, well, now I know what I have to do and I've just got to get going with it. Would you say that that's a fair assumption in how people's thinking yeah. processes are? Yeah, I think so. And I think look, there, there were lots of things that were put on hold last year. Mm. You know, I have two parts of my uh, professional life. One part mm-hmm. is I head um, an advisory practice. Right. And on the other, I've actually seconded myself into a role as chief security officer for a large national organisation. So I saw the consulting side get put on hold during mm the worst of COVID Uh, and then all of a sudden as we started to come towards the latter part of last year people realized that they couldn't put this stuff on hold forever so I saw my 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 um colleagues suddenly having you know really get some traction and having to get to get jobs done quite quickly and I've certainly been uh, faced with a lot of new um new pieces of consulting work uh, right from January one this year, so it's mm. really been a uh, that racing pace because they because they absolutely have decided that they they can't keep everything on hold. And in my mm. the other side of my life as a, as, a, as a chief information security officer, I actually am finding that uh, I too am am feeling that as well. Mm. I want to get these projects done and dusted. I, I've they've been hanging around too long now, and mm. I really I really want to see them in play. Mm, I like that attitude. Get up and, and, and do something this year. So I really love your, your operative word that you said, racing start. I just want to go back a second. You said just before 11, 11 countries that you'd normally do. So does that mean that you're traveling once a month internationally? Pretty much. And sometimes oh it's twice a month and I miss a month. So, yeah, I think um, year before last, so that was 2019, I did 11 journeys. I had eight uh, charted last year and as I say I just got the one so yes so I'd like to just quickly ask like how do you handle that because 
one, there's jet lag. You've also you're, you've got a life outside of work, or at least uh, people like you and me like to think we do. So you've got your your home life. How do you sort of balance all that, doing the work that you do and everything you sort of just rattled off before, which is quite a lot of commitment? Like, how do you, how do you sort of balance that then day to day? Uh, well, it's it's interesting. I always joke that sleep is highly overrated, um, but but the the reality for me is I do. I only sleep five or six hours a night, so I've got right. loads of day. And I have to say also, with not commuting any any longer, because I also live I also live in the country. I live an hour and fifteen hour and twenty minutes drive from from the city usually, and so uh, you know I, I've had that almost three hours back every day. So that's actually given me mm. the ability to cram more into my day, if you like. Um, right. Balance. You know, I think particularly during COVID when we're living and working, and I'm still working from home, living and working in the same place, you have to put some hard and fast rules in, in place for yourself. So every time I have sliding doors from my den into the main living area, and so if I hear the SBS news theme, it's definitely time for me to give over for the evening. Right. So, so that's, that's sort of your, um, your notification to be like, okay, I've got to sign off now. Absolutely correct. Because, you know, like today, for instance, I started my day with a webinar for the United States at 6.30am. Oh, gosh. Well, you are a busy bee. But because you are a busy bee, well, actually, um, let's uh, perhaps dive into a little bit about you and your, and your journey, because you do have a lot of experience. I'm really keen to, to chat through that. And perhaps if you could just talk our listeners through about where you started to like what you're doing now. Um. Yes, that's always an interesting. I never know how far back to go because, you know, I, I shock people and say, well, when I started my career journey, I was actually working in the music business um, and then in the entertainment business. So, you know, I don't think we'll go quite that far back, but that's kind of a different story. But I started in the technology space 25 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Um, I just, but I think it was always destined I was going to be a geek, right? You know, so I was just one of those kids who loved, loved looking at computers and loved looking at, at, at you know, behemoths of machines and trying to work out how they work. So that was, um, I guess, an inherent thing with me. Mm -hmm. um, if we sort of skip forward, I came up through infrastructure. So I was very much part of, you know, the data centre brigade. Um, so, and then I went into management. I was involved in uh, an outsourcing project for whole of government. Um, so that was an interesting change to sort of managing service providers, which was something we hadn't hadn't done. So, you know, moving from that, everything's in-house to everything's out mm -hmm. of house mm -hmm. was, uh, and then offshoring was yep. really uh, an extraordinarily exciting period of time. I also um, was CIO in the electricity uh entities and interesting thing about that was I was one of the first CIOs in Australia to be responsible for both real-time so real-time systems that keep the lights on mm -hmm. so operational control systems SCADA systems mm -hmm. and and also business IT so that was really kind of interesting and also um you know, I had a tap on the shoulder to go consulting because clearly I'd begun to be very interested in security through that journey, um, particularly as the organisation I worked for was uh, the pilot for the National Grid Security Operations Centre. So that was really exciting stuff. So I, I got this tap on the shoulder. Do you want to come consulting with us? And I went, you know what, this is probably an opportunity I can't afford to say no to. Mm. So I took that on. And so I've been in the security space ever since. 
So I'm one of those people, unusually, that have been a CIO and a CISO. So, you know, and, and now Chief Security Officer. So, you know, it's very interesting to see how it all converges over time. And so when you said earlier you got tapped on the shoulder, are you sort of seeing that throughout your career that those opportunities are still keep coming your way because you do have uh, quite an extensive level of experience and because of those opportunities, that's what sort of, and people tapping you on the shoulder, so to speak, yeah. has really sort of pushed you in the direction you're going now, would you say? Um, yeah, I would, I would. I would say that, interestingly, I haven't looked for a job for 15 mm. years. Right, right, um, right. And, and so it literally has been tap on the shoulder. I mean, the funniest one was I was sitting on a – I was in Chicago, Illinois for uh, – on. I was on an international committee for ISACA, one of our professional bodies, and uh, I was sitting there and there was another Aussie and we're sitting on the sofa waiting for the bus to take us to dinner. Right. And he, so he said, are you happy where you are, where you're working? I went, oh, you know, I'd never say no to look at other opportunities because I think we have to <laughs> – like we have to keep our eyes open, right? Of course, yeah. And so, so I said, oh, I'd always be, I'd, I'd be happy to, you know, entertain something. Well, six weeks later, I had a brand new job in a brand new firm. So, well, with you know, the, the guy at the bus stop, so an actual physical tap on the shoulder, basically. Literally a physical tap on the shoulder. That is absolutely amazing. I love that. I've oh, yeah. never so was- actually heard of something like that. So that's pretty. Uh, it's pretty a yeah. phenomenal story. And I can't say um, people who are listening have probably had that type of uh, opportunity as a physical tap on the shoulder when waiting for a, for a bus to head off to dinner somewhere. That's right, exactly. So that was, and that I think is also the benefit of being involved with professional bodies. For instance, you have that, those networking opportunities with peers mm. that can often bring you those opportunities. No, no, you're absolutely right. So, Joe, what I'd like to sort of talk to you about is your experience about being a woman in the industry. And I want to sort of preface this by saying that I, I'm also a woman. I've been in the industry not as long as you've been, but I'm really keen to understand and unpack some of the challenges that you've had because I think a lot of people are shy to perhaps talk about some of their struggles and and even so to the point perhaps that maybe they're shy to talk about it in case that they may feel that perhaps um, men or other women may sort of um, look at them differently because they are talking about some of the, the problems that exist. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on on your journey in this space. Yeah. Look, I think it's kind of a, it's an interesting discussion, but I'm going to preface it by saying, I believe the underrepresentation of women in the tech workforces generally and security specifically Mm. is a a discussion that should be had with men and women, because Mm. the only way we can affect real change is by standing shoulder to shoulder uh, and and working together to make those changes, because all the little changes that we make end up being a large change. And so we can only do that if we work in conjunction and, and in solidarity with one another. So that's my really my big thing. I think it's important for us to w- have male allies and champions to work mm-hmm. with to make this journey uh a better one. This journey, by the way, I have to say, the to to gender some sort of gender parity is not purely an Australian issue. This is an issue that we see globally. So, you know, I, I've I've uh, I'm the, the um, global volunteer founder for ISACA She Leads Tech program, and I've had the very great privilege of rolling that out in in uh, about 16 countries around the world. It's now in, in over 100. But, you know, I've heard some extraordinary stories uh, from women, uh, and 
in some parts of the world, the program actually accidentally created safe spaces for women to tell their stories that, of, of the challenges that they face. So that's to your point about some people are very uh, loath to, to speak about it openly. Mm. But, but I am not one of those women, you know, I, and I must say when I first started in the security space, uh, I remember going to my very first security conference, which I was really excited about in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and there were something like 250 delegates. There were three women there. Wow. Now, How are you surprised by that uh, that ratio, though? Uh, well, I was at the time. I was mm. absolutely stunned. Mm. And I look at it now and I see, you know, we see, obviously, it's it's much better than that. But if we look globally and we look at conferences globally, it's usually only about 10 to 15% female participation. And there are loads of reasons for that. Um, but, you know, that sort of is, is indicative of, of the situation that we face ourselves or find ourselves facing. And I think it's about, again, it's about making sure that um, we do step forward for our professional development opportunities because women sometimes don't. They'll, they'll hang back a little bit. So it's about confidence as well. Women need to have the confidence to speak up uh, in some of these, these areas. The other interesting thing that, that I see is that women say that they feel most comfortable in workplaces in technology where they see other women. Right. So that's an interesting thing. So if they see other women, they are more likely to be a part of to say, put their hand up and say, I want to go and work for, for that firm that Joe works for, that Carissa works for. So that's an interesting discussion that that is not often had. The other thing that's quite interesting, and it came out in um, a tech workforce survey uh, in 2020 that, that ISACA produced, and it looked at the perception gap. Men and women see things differently. So maybe it does prove that women are from Venus and men are from Mars. I don't know. But it certainly showed there was a a perception difference in some of these areas. Like, you know, men would think that their employer had programs to encourage the recruitment of women, whilst women would tell you that there was little or nothing. So Mm. it was interesting to see the difference. Um, So, you know, that's that's these are some of the the things that we face along that journey. So uh, the other thing that was quite interesting is that women are not particularly confident in their negotiating skills, their ability to perhaps negotiate the next step up the corporate ladder or that pay rise that they're looking for. But in fact, the numbers globally show us that women are more successful at getting it than Mm. men are who are very confident in their skills. So, again, there's that perception gap. Mm-hmm. So, talk, when you said before, women feel more comfortable about seeing other women. Why do you think that is? Um, it's a natural phenomenon. I think it's quite mm. interesting, and it's not just in the in the workforce. It's also in the study environment. I spoke to a wonderful young woman a, a couple of years ago when I was in Ireland for She Leads Tech, and. She was telling me that she was just finishing her first year of a computer science degree at the University of Dublin. Mm -hmm. And she said that when she first arrived for her first tutorial session, there was her, one other young woman, and 30, unfortunately, she said, very stereotypical hoodie-wearing, mm-hmm. testosterone-driven young men who perhaps didn't bathe often enough. Uh, and right. so I said to her, so oh, how did you feel God. about that? And she said, yeah. well, I was, she said, I come from a family of, with five brothers, so right. I was fine with, with that. But 
my colleague was really intimidated by that environment. Uh, she didn't feel safe. She felt, but but more than anything, she just felt intimidated. And she said the fact that she came from a family of six girls probably didn't help. So, you mm. know, that's about our conditioning. So oftentimes right. it's about conditioning. The background that we come from can really inform uh, our uh, our experience, informs current uh, experience. So previous experience informs current experience. So I think that's part of that as well. So it's, it's, it's again, it's something that women find themselves in that position worldwide. Again, it's not something I've heard about just in Australia. Uh, and it's also, as I say, it's, it's also young women at, at school and university as well. So how do you think men, so that, that example that you used before about um, the 30 men in hoodies and, you know, perhaps don't, don't bathe often enough, how do you think men sort of respond to women as sort of perhaps a little bit, a little bit more timid, a little bit more threatened that there are more men? Do you think men are responding appropriately to these, uh, to, to women and, and how they're sort of um, talking about these issues when they're going to these type of conferences or just working in the industry? It's Interesting point. Uh, again, at, at, a, at another conference where I was presenting, we had a great panel discussion. Mm. And I had a couple of men come up to me afterwards and say, you know, my wife or my, my daughter or my uh, sister has talked about these issues before. And, she, and they said, I just never, ever thought they were, they were really as bad as they thought. I thought it was just about them. But right. it, it's a real thing. So again, it's that, that perception, perhaps there's not the understanding that these are actually real situations that, that, that women find themselves in. So, you know, and I also remember, uh, being part of a webinar a couple of years ago also, that was primarily aimed at young women Mm. who wanted to climb the corporate ladder in the tech workforce. But what was really interesting was the number of men who, uh, joined the webinar, which I was actually delighted at because how can they know what the situation is unless they hear it firsthand? And again, lots of questions came out of that uh, about, well, what are the solutions? How can we help? And that's when I began this notion of having male allies. You know, we need to make our, they're not our enemy, they're our allies, right? Mm. To assist and to work together to make a difference. Do you think... Well, I'm just thinking in my head here, perhaps, do you think that perhaps because there there are certain men in the industry, perhaps it could be like a bit of an education on, uh, it's not a men versus women, it's like how to how to operate together, because in, in my experience as well, uh, much of that, that uh, conference in Dublin that you were talking about, um, it's almost um, sometimes like a little bit of a deer in the headlight on, on how to how to perhaps uh, talk to a female, and I don't mean in, in a in a romantic sort of way, but I mean just in general, in prof- and in a Pro- professional way as well. Correct. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that that again, it's a, it's an interesting point. Um, I was at a conference in Perth this time, mm-hmm. and there was a young man was talking about the number of women that he was, he was in the recruitment space, number of women he'd been recruiting into particular positions. Mm. And I couldn't help myself, you know, I had to, I had to ask the obvious question. So how many women do you have in your team? Deathly silence. Then he said, I've got one. Oh, and she's really capable and competent. Right. And that's kind of says it for me. He felt it necessary to add that last bit where if he was probably, I feel sure, if he was talking about the number of men in his team or or about a male colleague, he wouldn't have felt it was necessary to add that last piece. Correct. So 
that could well be about his conditioning. It could well be about his experience or his the baggage that he brings with him. But mm. it just just highlighted for me that unconscious bias. So it's about, I think we have to be aware of those biases that we bring with us, whether we be male or female, and just, just adjust the way that we that we think about it, you know, and, mm. and therefore how we address the situation when we're talking to women. And for goodness sake, I have to ha- say, I had an experience recently. I hope other women do not have this experience. I was interviewing a man mm-hmm. for a role and I had two male colleagues interviewing with me. Of course, we were doing it on Zoom um, for uh, a solutions architect role. And I asked a question about how security fitted into that landscape. And I was expecting to get, you know, the answer of, oh, you know, it's a security first approach or something. But he just said to me, Joe, I'm going to give you a technical answer for which I might have to explain to you later. Oh, so he mansplained or attempted to. Well, I let him him mansplain. And my two colleagues are teams messaging me on the side saying, when are you going to stop this? No, no, settle down let him finish and then I will just tell him about my background. So, you know, we shouldn't have to do that, but sometimes there is that perception and I call it the girl face. You know, I've got a girl face, so they see a girl face or hear a girl voice and they automatically assume they're going to have to be paternal and explain something to me. Right. You know, I guess you need to, no matter whether you're male or female, you actually, if you're going to be in that situation, you need to do a bit of background checking on the people that are going to be interviewing you, right? Because Absolutely. you never know, they might, that might be the tech stuff, they might be able to out-tech you, uh, you know, so you just got to, don't make assumptions because you see a woman, you think she can't understand technical uh, speak. And that's a really interesting point. And I guess you've got enough experience now to not be offended, not feel patronised um, by this by this uh, person that you're interviewing. But I think for, perhaps for other people who, I mean, myself, I, I mean, I'm at the stage now, I don't feel if someone is mansplaining or they are treating me like that, which to be honest is is less common nowadays, but perhaps in in the start of my oh. career absolutely was was there. Carissa, but- may I may I just say that experience happened three months ago and the young man involved was under thirty was so, no, I lie under thirty five. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's um still perpetuates mm-hmm. then again mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But you're sort of at the stage where it doesn't impact you um, in terms of um, you've got enough experience to know that um, you're not offended by it. But I, I, just from my point of view, I think perhaps other people absolutely would be. What would be some of your advice that you could provide to someone that is in a similar situation to you that they could sort of take on to, to not be offended by someone's ignorant behaviour? Um I have to say that sometimes I am offended by it. It's about right. not showing being offended by it. It's about coming back with fact. You know, I came back to him with my credentials and and you could literally see him shape with his mouth the O. He realised what he'd done. So, you know, you take the emotion out of the situation is the really big one for me. I've had this this saying forever, we don't cry in security. Mm. Sometimes these these things can be particularly for a younger person young person starting out can be really, really hurtful, uh, mm-hmm. but we don't cry in security. That doesn't mean that we don't go to the bathroom and dab our eyes perhaps, or we don't go out to <laughs> the car park and scream or find a punching bag and punch it. We can do all of that stuff, but you take the emotion out of the situation and, and just deal with it. And as I say, always come take the emotion out, come back with fact. That's the way that you deal with that situation. 
Do you believe, and I'm sorry that you went through that because that's absolutely nonsense, but yes. do you believe that moving forward as an industry, and I think people do talk about it, sometimes I question the um, the genuineness of how people go about it, but I think one of the things is, do you think we'll get to a stage where there is an equilibrium that people aren't asking patronising questions and mansplaining and all those things, and vice versa, we're not doing that then to men. Do you think we will get to that stage, or am I being too optimistic and thinking that it's quite a, a long way away. We will get to it, but let me give you some numbers on that. It's a little bit frightening when you realise that for us to get to parity in the tech workforce, Mm -hmm. um, given the current rate of change, we are talking about potentially 80 plus years. Now, that's bad enough, right? But if I were to tell you that if we were to get to economic parity, I'll just quote to you what Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, said recently. I do not accept a world that tells my granddaughters that economic equality can wait for their granddaughters' granddaughters. At at current trends, it will take two centuries to close the gap in economic empowerment, a gap that is widening, not lessening every day. Wow. Mm, Pretty powerful stuff, hey? Yeah, sorry, I'm just uh, digesting that statement. Um... He also went on to say, despite women's achievements and successes, their voices are still routinely overlooked and their opinions ignored. I'm sometimes asked, uh, what are the barriers at, at, you know, at my stage of my career that I still face? And, you know, I talk about the girl face. There's also the girl voice. It's being heard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. I can understand. And I, and I think that what you're talking about is absolutely what a lot of people are going through in terms of their, their thinking processes and how they feel about things. And I, so I really appreciate you sharing the, those stats and, and, and your stories. But one of the things I'd love to also just touch on a little bit more is what are your sort of thoughts on the female movement that has been happening in the industry? Do you think that we've perhaps taken it too far? And what I mean by that statement is we want there to be more camaraderie, whereas sometimes there is, I guess, it almost sort of feels from my perception that it's a men versus women thing. And, and similar to your point earlier, that we should be shoulder to shoulder, we should have solidarity. And and one thing that I've experienced in my career is there's a lot of men out there that absolutely are not patronising and they will call other men out for their um, their arrogant behaviour. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that does need to be commended. So for the men that are listening, um, they absolutely know who I'm talking about. So I'm just really keen to hear your honest thoughts about that and where do we sort of move forward from that? I actually don't think we've called bad behaviour out often enough. So your point right. about bad behaviour is is a very valid one. And I think mm. both men and women are to blame for this. We right. haven't called bad behaviour out. And, and I think it's about, for me, I think it's about making the changes in our own spheres of influence because we all have one. We all have a little sphere of influence. Now, it might only be a very small one or it might be a broader one depending on where you are in your career and the kind of organisation that you work in. And indeed, in your, in your private life as well. But we need to start making those changes because, as I said, all those littles end up by making a large change. So, you know, I'll tell you another little story. I was, this is only a year and a half, two years ago it was, I was sitting in a room with two other women, uh, the CFO of a particular organisation and a consultant on the phone, a male consultant on the phone. And we were talking about a particularly difficult audit that was going to have to take place in in this organisation. And 
and I was just talking talking to one of my female colleagues and saying, and and when do you think the timing for this would be would be best, given you know the 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 workload that your your part of the organisation has? And so we were starting to mull that over. The CFO, the male CFO, pipes up and said, "Oh, she's not going to have to worry about it because she'll probably be pregnant again by the time this order comes around." Oh my god! I just died listening to that comment. Correct. So, I—I uh, I mean, the consultant on the phone went deathly quiet, and I just said, I, "I'm sorry, I have to call that out. That is really inappropriate." Would you say that to a male colleague? He said to me, "Well, my, my male colleagues can't get pregnant." Oh gosh! And this is so, a senior person saying this. this was a C-suiter. Wow. So, I just, I just, I did. I called him out then and there. The consultant actually said something as well, said that he thought it was inappropriate to have, have made that comment. Um, and the poor woman involved, she was just, had obviously gone red from the tips of her toes to the, the, the top of her head and, and oh, really didn't know how to respond to that. That's an awful thing to say to someone. Yeah. Yeah, so it's about, seriously, we do need to call that kind of bad behaviour out. And you can do it in such a way that it's not going to get you fired um, or or in front of HR, but Mm -hmm. you do need to call it out and just say, look, excuse me, I'm really quite offended by that. I realise that that's how you might feel, but I actually am offended by it. You need to tell people. You know, one thing that's interesting that, I mean, these men are married or they've got partners. And I mean, I've got a partner. And if he had said something like that, I would be absolutely just gobsmacked. So the fact that these these men are likely married, I'd be interested to, if their wife ever heard them speaking like that, how are they not offending uh, like their partners and their wives? That's something that I've always been very curious about by these statements. Carissa, that's an absolutely incredibly good point because I keep saying that to you um, because... <laughs> Because I think that they're probably very different at home. Right. Um, and, in fact, I've seen that in, in some colleagues. You know, I, I know one fellow who's a lovely man, full of bravado in the workplace, you know, and I've known he and his wife for a long time, full of bravado, never offensive, but just, you know, one of those big personalities in the workplace. And at home, he's really a very quiet man. So right. there are some people who have that, you know, what do they say, uh, home angel, street devil. So right. I think sometimes there's a little bit of that as well. I, um, over the break, my brother sent me this documentary. It's, it's around, it was 2006, and admittedly it was like bad quality, but it was interesting because it was a, it was a, uh, it was a gay woman who actually dressed up as a man for 18 months to understand what it's like to be a man. And basically the synopsis of it is the insight that she she sort of derived out of it is that men and women uh, both have it tough, but just in very different ways. And wow. she also explains that women can't really understand necessarily what it's like to have, you know, uh, to be uh, aesthetically made up like a man and all of those types of things. But then conversely, she also then spoke about some of the issues that women then faced and how not one's worse off than the other that is fundamentally different. And I think that um, what you referenced before, um, men are from uh, – no, women are from Venus, men are from Mars, and I've read that book. And I think that sort of um, at a high level really does articulate how we, we are two different um, groups of people that do have fundamentally very different uh, issues and uh, problems. Oh, look, that's why diversity of thought is really important. It's important to have an equal measure of both, right, because diversity of thought gives you in, in, informed decision-making and often innovative decision-making. But let me take you on another little journey. I had a woman who was sitting on a on a committee that I was chairing and um, 
a really smart technologist. And I'd never realized until she she said, oh, Joe, can I have a chat with you? I said, yeah, sure. And she said, I just want to let you know, I don't know whether you're aware or not. She said, I'm a trans woman. And she said, um, you know, you were talking earlier about, about how sometimes women are treated as though they don't have a brain. And she said, I'll tell you, I used to be called Kevin. And when I was Kevin, I was treated one way. When I made the change and became Karen, mm-hmm. something else happened completely. She said, I changed state, I changed job change company and she said so I thought I would have a clean slate she said all of a sudden I did have a clean slate but I was being treated as though I only had 50% the brain I had when I was Kevin and I have as a as a cis woman as a born woman I have no idea of of how that would feel but Mm. she was able to articulate it incredibly well has in fact written an academic paper on it since then so you know I, I have to rely on someone like her to be able to to, to give uh, that kind of insight. So that was a little bit frightening to me. Um, and I really appreciated her having the, having the uh, bravery to talk to me about it. So what I'd like to talk to you about next is what are your beliefs on more women taking up leadership roles in the industry? So do you believe that there will be an increase in this? And there are some reports in which uh, illuminate that there are a lot of women actually leaving the industry. So if you can also touch on perhaps why do you think that is? Um, I think I'd like to see a way, a way lot more women uh, in leadership roles. We actually know that uh, the current numbers show that the pipeline is decreasing. So the generations coming behind those of us who are currently in the tech workforce uh, are going to need to feel encouraged and feel as though that they will be developed and that there will be mentors available to them so they too can take up the challenge of, of leadership. So I think that leadership is, is um, leadership is a very interesting discussion by itself. Mm-hmm. Some people are very comfortable with the notion of leadership whilst others aren't. And that's both men and women, mm-hmm. and that's perfectly fine. You know, not everybody is going to be the CEO, nor do they want to be the CEO. And I think we need to recognise that. Mm-hmm. We also have to be very careful not to put our own standards or our own values on something like leadership on other people because they, they may not want it. Mm. So that's one thing. However, there are women who do want leadership and we should be encouraging them uh, and giving, as I say, giving them the professional development to allow them to make that step up the ladder. Women often feel stuck in their careers and they don't know how to make the next step. So one of the ways to do that is, is again, if they see other women that are in the organisation, that's helpful to them because they can Mm -hmm. see, particularly those who are more senior to them, they see that women can make it. So, and it's also about making sure, I believe, that you have Mm. a mentor. Mentoring is that mentors and coaches are really, really helpful people, whether you're male or female. But certainly, if you're looking, if you're a woman looking for a mentor, all you have to do is ask. What's the worst person that, that, what's the worst answer that person can give you? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. But as my grandmother used to say, if you don't ask, you don't get. So, the worst thing is they'll say, no, you'll move on and you'll find somebody else you would like to to work with because men- the mentoring-protege relationship mm. is really a working relationship. So, yeah. And I, as, as for uh, women leading industry, there are some women at the top of the game in, in the industry, but if you look at the statistics, there's not a real lot of them. 
So one of the things that we need to do is to, to look at how we can improve those numbers. How can we increase those numbers? I'm not a fan of mandates because mm-hmm. I see what's happened in like in, in the Arctic countries, for instance, where there is a mandate that you have 50% uh, mm-hmm. women on your executive mm-hmm. team and 50% women on your board. Mm-hmm. What happens, and I've heard both men and women say this, is all of a sudden the reverse bias is beginning to happen. You hear people saying, oh, she only got the job because mm-hmm. of the mandate. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't want that because that's just bringing in a whole other range of bias that we don't need. Mm-hmm. So it's about encouraging women to make that step themselves and to not put those false uh, false mandates in place. Now, that's a really interesting point, and I think I've sort of expressed this as well in terms of I said I'd rather lose a deal or anything, opportunity, if, it, if I was getting it purely on being a female. I think it's an insult um, to my intelligence, but then also to, to just even think like that is absolute nonsense, and I think that, um, I'd rather just lose if that's what it absolutely came yeah, down I, to at the end of the day. I can't even I can't even begin to understand that. Mm. Uh, I find it very. I'll oh, give it to her because she's a she's a woman. I mean, that that actually makes no sense to me. Um, yeah, makes no sense. No, you're absolutely right. So I really appreciate you um, sharing sharing your thoughts on that. The last thing I'd like to sort of touch on uh, today as well, because I know that we are um, coming up to almost a full hour now. We've sort of been uh, chit chatting away, is. I'd like to just get your thoughts on um, developing countries uh, like PNG and Africa. What are some of the initiatives that you're sort of seeing in this space and what can we expect to see emerge in this arena? The interesting thing with um, the developing world uh, and emerging countries uh, is that you are often surprised at what they have and what they don't have. Right. If we look at our nearest neighbours, PNG, I remember when I first went to PNG about 16 or 17 years ago, mm-hmm. you would get off the aircraft and you had no no mobile coverage, gone, nothing. Uh, and then gradually over a period of time, yeah, there's, there's mobile coverage, you know, you can actually get, you don't have to queue for a computer to be able to send an email anymore. So all of that is beginning to change. So I've actually seen that in 15 years. Um also, I'm beginning to see, you know, I started an informal networking group when I was in PNG some years ago uh, for women in tech. And uh, to now see that having blossomed and to see women actually taking on leadership roles in what is pretty much a paternal society, mm-hmm. except there are a few clan clanship groups that, that uh, it's pater- maternal. Um, so that's a really interesting thing. But the overarching issue that you face in, in countries like that is the prevalence of, of, um, of, the, of safety for women, getting women to and from work safely. Right, so okay. that's a real issue. Uh, the other thing, if I look at Africa, you know, I, I talked about um, ha- having had discussions with women, giving them a safe inadvertently giving them a safe place through the She Leads Tech program, which is now under the One in Tech Foundation, uh, which is an ISACA foundation, giving them a safe place to share their stories. And when you hear women telling you how they've gotten out of um, out of forced enforced marriages or early marriage, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm saying 15, 16, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and to hear a woman say that I just married for love for the first time in my life. I'm 40 years old and I've just had a baby. Amazing. 
Mm-hmm. And I, another young woman saying that she was tired of the situation in, in the workplace where if a man walks into the room, she is expected to stand and give that man her chair. Now, when this first happened to her, she was working in a senior IT role and she was seven and a half months pregnant. Right. So this heavily pregnant woman was expected to stand. Wow. But then I, you go to somewhere like Kenya, for instance. Mm where the whole country is connected. And in many of these countries, you find that connectivity, internet connectivity, is in fact free to the citizenry. So that's something to think about. We don't have that here. We do not have free internet connectivity, as we all know, and the further bush you are, the more expensive it becomes. Right. Uh, We also have enormous black spots here, as does the United States, for instance, whereby you know, even mobile phone coverage is a really shoot. So uh, women are not safe in some of these areas uh, and they, don't, they also don't have access to the connectivity to give them that safety. So it's a developing countries, it's a big discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that's interesting in Africa is that there are not necessarily as many what I'd call, what we would call real jobs. So you often find that women become very entrepreneurial in that mm-hmm. respect. There's a young woman in Nigeria who um, uh, I think she had quite she was a beautiful, very tall, gorgeous woman, and she had quite large feet, and she was always having trouble getting shoes. So she, she thought, you know what, I'm going to make my own. So she began to work with uh, a bootmaker, a shoemaker, mm-hmm. to make shoes. She made these beautiful sandals. They're now being marketed to the world. Wow. So, you know, so women become quite entrepreneurial in the way that they think. And sometimes it's just about giving them that connectivity, connecting them to their markets. uh, Mm. So that technology is a really powerful thing. It gives them economic uh, empowerment as well as um, security, as well as that, that technological advancement. Do you think because of that connectivity now, like it'll start to emerge, like perhaps like 10x, um, probably even just due to last year of everyone sort of thinking a little bit differently, but because they've had those opportunities to think a little bit more creatively um, in terms of the the sandal um, example that you gave and also um, uh, because they, like you mentioned before, there's no real job, so of course they're having to think a little bit outside of the the box. I I absolutely think so. I've Mm. got to say I think the pandemic has actually uh, made us think outside the box because, you know, think about it. Even five years ago, if we had have had the pandemic, we wouldn't have had the same level of technical uh, availability to be Mm. able to do what we do, to take call centres and put them in people's homes and all sorts of stuff like that. We wouldn't have had that that opportunity or that ability. So I think that that's made us think differently. It's also made organisations that have traditionally had the bums on seats mentality to think differently because Mm. all of a sudden they realise that that, – that employees can be trusted. I know in mm. one of my client organisations where they have two large national 24-7, 365-day-a-year call centres that ended up by having to be in people's homes, they were really concerned about productivity levels. What they discovered was not only were, were, the, were the call centres more productive, mm. they were having, but, but the individuals were taking less comfort breaks and almost no uh, sick leave. So you know, it's, it's turned thinking on its head. You're absolutely right. And when you said at the earlier the start of the interview around your your commute, like it's probably because a lot of these people are cutting out their commute. So they probably think, well, I don't need to have as much um, downtime because I'm not commuting for two and a half hours a day. 
Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I think that's making a big difference. And you're right. I think there's an emergence, an emerging thought pattern about how we lead in that diverse, because that's a diverse situation, right? Geographically diverse situation. So, you know, I do things like I insert what I call water cooler breaks into my week with my team. Mm. So, you know, where it's not necessarily about work or if it is, it's just that incidental chat, but you might share a quote with somebody or you might you might just have a cup of tea and you all get together and have a bit of a chat and you just ask those incidental questions that you would in the tea room uh, mm. under normal under whatever normal circumstances might be in the future. No, I absolutely understand completely what you're saying. So, Joe, I really, really appreciate your time. I know that you are very time poor. Uh, you've been very real and honest about your thoughts. And I think, like I said, like definitely um, getting down to business in terms of, of how you sort of think through a lot of the scenarios that you shared and the examples that you've provided. If perhaps uh, people have a question that I haven't asked you today, how can people go um, about uh, reaching out to you? I'm very active on LinkedIn, so okay. just link in with me and I'm more than happy to answer any questions that, that people might have. I really do appreciate your time again, Joe, and I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Carissa. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.